0: Support for Class Dismissed comes from School Status. School Status helps educators at every level take control of student data for increased outcomes and meaningful stakeholder engagement. Find out more at SchoolStatus.com. You are listening to Class Dismissed, episode 159, and I'm your host, Nick Ortego. President Trump dives headfirst into the debate surrounding the reopening of schools and the Ivy League cancels sports for the fall. Could this be a barometer for high school athletics? podcast that inspires educators through story. Each week, we cover some of the hottest topics and news in the world of education. Plus, we hear from a guest with a bright idea for education that you can apply in your community. This week, our guest gives us some tips on how educators can navigate special ed during a pandemic. Hello, everybody. Nick Ortego here. Today is July 12, 2020, and I'm joined by friend, principal, and co-host, Christina Pollard. Christina... Welcome back to Class Smith. How was your week?
1: Oh, another good week. Another good week in our new school district. Just narrowing down to the final weeks before students return. Yeah, and it, I just it's coming don't fast. know what to say.
0: <laughs> it, it is coming fast. And, and as a parent, you're in a different district than, than where I am. But I still don't know like what my child's district is doing yet um is that does that seem weird? I mean, I guess everyone's trying to
1: No, our parents don't know yet either. Yeah. Um we actually take the plan with the multiple options in it to the school board on Tuesday.
0: Okay, so you guys are still waiting approval from the yes. school board. Is that the state school board or like your local your... No,
1: our local school board and yeah. then next steps to roll out that type of information.
0: Mm-hmm. Um Anything you so can I'm, share with us I'm, about that or is it all still
1: kind of top secret and you don't want um, to know about yet? It's not necessarily top secret because the state department gave you guidance. There's either going to be 100% virtual, um, 100% normal, or a hybrid model. So we just had to develop um, an exhaustive plan for each one of those models and then um, present that to the school board. And the school board is going to select which plan we're going to implement.
0: Okay. And are you guys recommending one or are they just going to look at them all?
1: I can't necessarily say that is what our superintendent will do, or if that's what she's required to do. I'm inclined to believe that all parties want to see the hybrid model mm-hmm. for safety purposes, but yet wanting to give children an opportunity to get back in the building. I just don't think any decision we we make is going to be right or wrong. I think we're going to make the decision we're going to try to do what's best for kids, and I don't think much time after that a new decision is going to have to be made.
0: So, anybody who was following the the news this week knows that uh, President Trump dove headfirst into the controversial topic of education and what schools should do uh, for the fall semester. And he actually uh, came out talked about it on Twitter and saying that you know all schools have to go back. Uh, we need to get everyone back into school. And he actually even made the threat to pull funding for districts that don't put kids back into school, like physically there. Um, I think part of that motivation comes from a productivity uh, perspective. I think some people believe that until we get kids back in school, we are not going to have a productive workforce in this country. Um, and Nick, was, I'm outraged. Yeah, the, the, the <laughs> response I am was outraged not by <laughs> positive by educators. And, and I will say this, I do think we need to get back to school but I just feel like if you haven't helped us get back, then you really don't have any say in saying get back. Like I feel like there's been no no guidance or help or any
1: heavy lifting going on. Here. I, I don't know. I just want to try to try to try to unpeel this. So get back to school, one hundred percent. Don't deviate. Do a hybrid. Delay school. Try to go back as normal. But certain prisoners were released from jail because it wasn't safe enough for them. Um, so let me get this straight. Go back to school or we'll take your funding. But yet we've had to jump through hoops to get the first round of cares that we still haven't received and provide all of this PPE and all of these things needed to make your school buildings safe. Okay, go back to school and you have not once thought about hazard pay for educators, Mm -hmm. bus drivers, child nutrition workers. I mean, come on something's got to give eventually. Uh, to me, I think it's, it's,
0: I'm going to look at it like this. It's just political noise and that's all it is. And I think the people who are going to actually make decisions, I don't think any funding is going to get pulled. I think that's, you know, just an empty threat. Uh, and I think the people who actually, have but it doesn't
1: allow, it doesn't give teachers a positive outlook. It, to me, it created hysteria and even more anxiety on teachers who aren't even back in the buildings yet.
0: That does seem to be about par for the, course, with much of what we've dealt with with COVID-19, though, where, where everyone kind of does feel like they're fending for themselves in many ways, or, you know, it's not my problem, it's the governor's problem, or it's the city's problem, or it's the district's problem. Um, so, but uh, I don't know, again, I just feel like it's noise, and and I think the right decisions will
1: continue to be made as,
0: as we move forward. What say you?
1: I do, th- I do believe the right decisions will be made. It's just so much chatter, and it makes it even harder for school officials to try to disperse information and keep people calm. Um, that's the hardest part for me. What's interesting on
0: July 10th, the uh, New York Times um published a, an article which actually linked to a 69-page document, um, which was for internal use only, but it basically was the CDC's guidance on like, how to handle schools, and it was given to the White House and other officials on <laughs> the need-to-know basis. And it was so different from what the president was saying publicly. I mean, for example, in the talking points section of these materials, it was actually... Um, critical of noticeable gaps in all the K-12 through 12 reopening plans it reviewed. Um, and then it got specific about like Florida, Oregon, Oklahoma, and Minnesota so as having the most detail. But it was saying that you know, this is a very dangerous situation if we force everyone back to school. In fact, I think they use the term a highest risk situation to force people uh, and students back into the classroom. And and the the reason they say it was going to be so dangerous, really comes down to a lot of the things that you and I have been talking about for weeks months really on this show. And that is the districts while they have plans to, you know, do what they can to prevent spread the best they can, they don't have the money or the resources to do things like contact tracing or even widespread testing should they yes. have an outbreak. And he, they were that's yes. what the CDC was, you know, concerned about and that's what they were notifying the White House about. How do how do we get here though? Like we've had months to figure that out. We've known this is coming. You and I, two two, you know, little little guys doing a podcast, have known this <laughs> yes. is coming. How come mm-hmm. we have not been able to ramp up testing and ramp up I really can't
1: raising? wrap I really cannot wrap my head around it. Um it it almost feels as as if we're an afterthought. The whole education process is an afterthought. Yet we're being, you know, the pressure is being put on us that if we get all of our children back in school, we're going to jumpstart the economy.
0: Yeah, I think it's dangerous. It, it does. I mean, I like the idea of a hybrid model because it does multiple things. It it gets school districts and teachers and educators in the habit of doing both, you know, trying to do this safely in person, but also continuing distance learning. So it kind of sets you up to go either direction should it allow for it. Um, So I just like that whole like, you know, drilling if you will of the two different ways rather than all in on one or all in on the other.
1: I agree. I agree. I do think it's going to be the most productive for us, but again, We've got to roll it out the right way, communicate and encourage, encourage parents to, you know, trust the school system. Because if anything else, the school districts have always been committed to doing what's best for children, but they do what's best with what they have.
0: Let's talk about. So it's going to take a lot of support. Let's uh, switch gears. We're going to talk about something that's um, going to hit a little close to home for you. For those that aren't regular listeners, Um, your husband's a football coach. You have two boys one who i should say men one is a college football player and the other is a high school football player both very good um and this week the ivy league actually announced that they will not do fall sports um so i just kind of wonder now it is the ivy league it's sports aren't necessarily their bread and butter but um will we see other either at the college level or the high school level um school districts kind of do the same thing and, and possibly not do sports this fall. What are your thoughts?
1: There's a lot of chatter going on. And I think athletes and coaches alike want to play ball. I think children really are tired of being at home. They have a little bit of you know anxiety or fear about it, but they miss the whole concept of their school day and, and socializing with, with their teammates. Um, but at the same time, if you don't have appropriate protocols in place, I think one of the reasons that you see these different um, universities make these types of decisions is early on in June when camps started to, to roll back out and practices and summer workouts. And then within the first two weeks of that, what did you see? numbers started popping up at different campuses where the student athletes were coming down with covid and at a certain point in the month of june they had to just shut it down. and so when you look at it like that way in the summer you can't really control you have a certain number that are present, you know, maybe maybe participating in the summer, but when you're talking about in august and all students are re-enrolling whether it's, you know, an online setting or face to face at our colleges and universities, you're talking about what one hundred or more uh, athletes. Just let's just focus on just football. How are you going to social distance, protect all of them, and limit your numbers? And think about the number of people that it takes to run those programs. Your your trainers, mm-hmm. your doctors, your assistant coaches, let alone the position coaches. I mean, it's it's a lot to try and handle. And then consider um, your smaller sports who have a little bit of an advantage for it, but it's a lot to take on. And when you really look at the big picture, organizations just are just making decisions that they think are going to be best for the school community. So I can tell you in this household, they want to play ball.
0: Right. And and my son does too. And my son's um, club team, not the high school sports, they've been back at it. They haven't necessarily had games, but they've had camps. Um, They've Mm -hmm. had large tryouts with lots of different kids. And it makes me nervous um, because they're not you know, super cautious out there other than being outside and passing the ball around. But, you know, they group up and the coach talks to them and stuff. And um, now, fortunately, I have not seen or heard of any cases amongst any of those kids. And, and there's so many things we don't know about COVID-19. Right. So, uh, you right. know, is it, is it has something to do with the fact that they're, you know, 15, 16 and younger um, that we haven't seen a breakout? What like you said, you've heard of, you know, colleges where you do have these outbreaks where you're dealing with 18 to
1: 22 year olds. Correct. And and I really feel bad for my son. Um, He elected not to play travel ball this summer. Um, My husband is high risk and thinking about being around all of those families and traveling um, weekend to weekend, he elected not to play. It was heartbreaking for me. Very disappointing. You know, he's missing out on that this summer. But he made that decision for his father. And when I look at that, he's missing out on summer workouts and time with his teammates. And we see their pictures on social media. But at the same time, every single day, I know my baby's safe.
0: Yeah. And that says a lot about your son's character. So kudos to him there. Um, I mean, what is your prediction about sports? If you had to guess, I mean, knowing that here in the South, Football is king. Uh, I mean, it really is. It's just like
1: Texas or Florida. I mean, where you have. I don't see football being canceled. I see it being restricted. I don't see um, stadiums packed out with fans. I think it's going to take a a hit financially, but I think those kids are going to play ball.
0: Yeah, I think you're I'm going to agree with you until something goes wrong. And that might be in an isolated event somewhere. If we start to hear a a team, just say a high school team, in you know, random place in the south, and the whole team comes down or several members or a coach gets sick. I mm-hmm. think that's when we'll start to see some sort of knee jerk reaction take place there. Correct. All right, Christina. Well, um, it's so much to uh, keep an eye on when it turns to uh, COVID-19 and how it's going to affect us going into the new year. But we'll try to keep it optimistic. And we'll keep you all who are listening up to date with all of the changes. Are you ready for today's Bright Idea? Yes. Our guest in today's Bright Idea segment is here to talk about how educators can navigate special education during a pandemic. Nate Levinson is the Managing Director of the District Management Group, and he recently released his new book, Six Shifts to Improve Special Education and Other Interventions. Nate, welcome to Class Dismissed.
2: Thanks, Nick. It's great to be here.
0: Um, and it's so exciting to have you. We've been trying to have you on the show for a little while. We um, we're actually just about to have you on the week or I think that everything was shut down and we rescheduled and uh, you now have this new book being released. But before we get into the book, I, I want to kind of dive into what your world's been like for the past few months, because I've heard from educators that special education in, during a pandemic has been a big question mark for them. I mean, what type of questions and, and consulting have you been dealing with?
2: Sure. You know, I think one of the saddest things about the pandemic is that it has magnified so many of the inequities we had before the pandemic. And kids with special needs, kids with disabilities, they were not doing nearly as well as we wanted. They represent one of the largest achievement gaps um, in the country. And through the pandemic, through the shutdown in the spring, uh, despite heroic efforts, by teachers and districts. So no criticism of any person trying. But kids with disabilities uh, really did not thrive in any way, shape or form. And the gaps got bigger.
0: And so what did you see as a major challenge? I guess the obvious one to me was, I mean, how do you continue special education and this specialized learning remotely? I mean, it looked like teachers were having a tough enough time with, with the general population.
2: Well, I think you really, the very way you phrase that question, though, gets a part of the issue. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you'll That's see probably my naivete. No, no, no. Everybody thinks that way. But you'll see it in the book as well. If the goal is to serve kids with disability as well, general education has to be the lead. That is, you know, in, when we were in person, uh, back in the day when kids went into schools, um, the goal is to have general education teachers providing the vast majority of high-quality instruction to students. Now, that doesn't often happen, but when the pandemic came, the split became even greater. And everybody turned to the special ed department and said, what are you going to do for kids with special needs? And many, many of the things they do don't translate at all to a remote setting. So in, in many ways, kids got even less remotely if you had a disability than if you didn't
0: let's dive into that a little bit. Cause I think that is your first shift in your book. There's six shifts that you kind of point to. And it's the fact that there needs to be more general education. And in fact, I think your, your main driving point is the fact that students who are in special education actually end up getting less general ed time mm-hmm. than those that are actually in it.
2: Yeah, exactly. You know, it, for make like, one important distinction, the vast majority of kids with special needs, 85, 90% of them, are kids with mild to moderate disabilities. Um, there's another group that have more significant needs. Um, but for that 85, 90%, um, they are and should be in the gen ed classroom, you know, the vast majority of their day. They need to get high-quality instruction from their classroom teacher, from their math teacher, from a reading teacher because the research is really clear, John Hattie and everybody else says, uh, the quality of the teacher is central. And if you're gonna teach grade level material, kids have to be in the classroom to be taught that material. But based on our studies across the country, if I'm a student with a disability, or even just a student who struggles more broadly, I get less instruction from my classroom teacher than if I didn't struggle. So I'm going to be really clear on this. Imagine a second grader who struggles to read. They get less reading instruction from a certified reading teacher or from a classroom teacher than a student who doesn't struggle. And then we can't be shocked that these kids fall further behind.
0: I guess if we are, if there's anything I am shocked about, it's the fact that that's happening. That just seems like a a logical, easy fix.
2: Well, here's why. Again, we have only good people trying to do the right stuff and the theory of action never written seldom spoken but played out in people's decisions every day in public schools is that if i'm a student with a disability the theory of action is if i am given help in a really small group one kids two kids three kids that that would be better than being in a whole class and the other part of the theory of action is If I am given help by a special educator because I have special needs and they are special educators, that that's the perfect match. And so that would mean that in many schools, more than half in this country, a student who struggles to read with a disability gets pulled out of class when reading is being taught, is put in a group of two or three kids, and is more likely to be taught reading by a paraprofessional rather than a teacher because people were thinking that small group mattered more than a large group with a really skilled teacher. But again, John Hattie, What Works Clearinghouse, Gap Closing School District say just the opposite is true. Having great instruction from a highly skilled teacher matters much more than just being two or three kids with a less skilled teacher.
0: You are a uh, former public school superintendent. Um, you work with school districts now. Uh, I know a lot with consulting. You, you've written this book about special education, but you also open up this book kind of telling a personal story. Special education is a personal journey for you, right?
2: Yeah, I You know, I grew up in a time, so I'm an old guy. Um, I grew up before special ed was a law, before we had these rights. And I know firsthand why we need them. I had significant speech and language challenges. Uh, Very few people could understand what I said. Um, I talk for a living now. So I owe my very career to um, speech and language pathologists. I also had really significant dysgraphia. People couldn't read what I wrote either. So communication on a lot of fronts was a challenge for me. And it took, but I happened to be really good at math at the same time. And it is only because my mother stormed into schools screamed at principals, screamed at teachers, ultimately drove me 45 minutes, three times a week uh, to get services. Uh, So my school did not help me. Uh, My mother did. And I just happened to have the benefit of a mother who could uh, do all those things. So it's nice to see that the laws have shifted and it's a right. Um, But weirdly enough, the right has guaranteed kids services. But it has not guaranteed them effective services. and And the book really tries to make that shift away from doing a, a lot of stuff to things that really move the needle, raise achievement, prepare kids uh, for success after graduation.
0: So this topic's clearly very important to you. Um is the target, the administrations that make these decisions on special education, or is it the special educator that's on the front lines?
2: I think it's both um, and it's the parents as well, because here's what happens is everybody means well. We have a paradigm of how to support kids with special needs that has not worked. The achievement gap is huge. It's not getting any smaller um, as scores have risen for kids without disabilities over the last 20 years. They did not rise for kids with disabilities. So everybody who's sitting around an IEP meeting Is fighting for the wrong stuff to go into the IEP. But for the kinds of changes of how schedules are built, who's hired to teach kids with disabilities, um, those kinds of changes require superintendents and special ed directors and principals to fund and schedule differently. So a classroom teacher or a special educator on their own unfortunately can't implement these changes unless leadership is putting in place the the infrastructure to do so. And to be really honest, parents need to support this. And when they understand it, they usually love it. They have been incredibly supportive of these changes. But their support is also central to being able to change a system.
0: Back in early May, we did an episode um, about a special education teacher named uh, Conrad Wirt, who was a Teacher of the Year, um, in special ed, but he was actually just a, a, a national type teacher of the year for his, or at least for his district, back in 2012. So he clearly was good at what he did, but he also loved music. And a documentary ended up being made about him, where he he quit his job as a teacher because he was so burnt out, mm-hmm. and he actually went on the road to play his music and talk to the the public and the people who were listening to his songs about. The challenges that there are in special education and and not really having the support system and feeling um, overwhelmed by by everything they face and I and I noticed that you talk a little bit about that in your book as well. I mean, what's broken here?
2: Yeah. So it's a major theme of the book is you know first and foremost how do you make things better for kids, but just as importantly is how do you make it better for teachers because all fifty states have a shortage of special educators. They are leaving the profession faster than any other role. And on the way out, they tell their friends, don't become a special educator. And I think there are a number of reasons for that. The first is too much of what they're doing isn't working. And that's so frustrating. Second is the special educators know that general education has to be a big part of the solution. And in too many schools, that's not the case. And so they feel like they've been asked to do the impossible. Let's face it, a special educator might have a student for 40 minutes a day and the classroom teacher for six hours. Well, who should have the larger responsibility for helping that student be successful academically? I would say the person who had them for six hours and the special educator is extra to help. But too often, it's reversed, the expectations. And the third thing, which I go into a great deal of detail in the book, Is the job of a special educator or a school psychologist, Um, it's an impossible job. They are asked to do so many things. I call them, they're like the decathlon athletes. They've got to do every sport under the sun. Uh, They write IEPs, they do assessments, they teach math and reading and science and social studies, and they write behavior plans. No other educator in a school has to do as much. And so one of the strategies I talk a lot about and and educators have loved is what we call playing to your strength. If I'm a school psychologist and I'm great at writing IEPs, I do mostly that. If I'm a school psychologist who's great at counseling, I do mostly that. And if I'm a school psychologist who's phenomenal at behavior management, I do mostly that. And letting people specialize um, really improves teacher morale. And then the other idea is we just have too many meetings and too much paperwork. It'll never go to zero, but the average special educator spends more time in meetings and paperwork than with kids. And nobody went to school to do that. And there are very specific strategies that can streamline meetings and paperwork so that teachers can spend much more time with kids, which helps kids, but it also helps the teachers because they're doing more of what they want to be doing.
0: You're almost saying, I guess, if, if just the general ed teacher would take more ownership of those special ed students, we could get pretty far. Is that too harsh to say it that way? Or
2: um, I think it's only half true. And let's also unpack why that might not have happened, because gen ed teachers care deeply about their kids.
0: Exactly. That's so why when, I felt harsh
2: when I said it. I know, but so I'm going to make, I'm going to clarify it, but it's true that in many schools, gen ed teachers are passing the baton. So why do they do that? And and these are great caring people. I think they do it for three reasons. One, let's acknowledge that gen ed teachers receive zero training on how to teach kids with disabilities. That That is the median amount of instruction if you're going through an undergraduate or master's degree program. Yeah, fair point. So. Why should a classroom teacher think, I know what to do? We didn't teach them that. And they're thinking down the hall are these specialists. They even have special in their name called special educators who know exactly what to do. So step one is you have to have instructional coaching, which can be done by special educators who make great instructional coaches, to teach the pedagogy to classroom teachers. How do I, as a classroom teacher, have the skills to check for understanding, chunk the material, scaffold the instruction? Now, the real win-win here is all those strategies that were great for kids with disabilities happen to be great for everybody else as well. So one is acknowledge classroom teachers don't have the training, and we need to provide it to them through coaching. Second, if you don't provide what we call extra time for instruction to kids who struggle, then it is actually impossible for a classroom teacher to be successful. So again, let's assume I'm a seventh grader who struggles in math. Yes, I want the seventh grade math teacher to have primary responsibility for teaching seventh grade math to kids with disabilities. But you know that student with a disability who's struggling in math, they did not master sixth grade or fifth grade math either. And they may have concepts like multiplying fractions that come back to fifth grade, you can't expect that seventh grade teacher to teach seventh grade math and make up all those past skill gaps. Mm -hmm. So what you have to do is have a second period. This is what we call, and it's one of the big shifts of adding extra time, not extra adults. There has to be in the schedule a second period where a teacher who is strong in math is teaching all the skills, all the things that that student hadn't learned in years past to catch them up. And when you have that bargain where the math, the first period of math says I'll teach this year and somebody else will teach prior years, then the classroom teacher says that's a fair deal. I can hold up my part of that bargain. But if you're going to ask that teacher to do both, current year, and make up for past stuff. It's an unfair request. And again, the most common response is, oh, let's do co-teaching, let's do push-in, let's add a para. All of those strategies don't add an extra minute to teach prior year skill gaps.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a very good point. Now, you mentioned that we've watched special ed change, reform, um adapt over the past several decades. Is there one particular reform that you've seen in recent years that you feel like that is a huge step in the right direction? That is a win?
2: Yeah. I, I think that, and it's funny, when I first started talking about the things in this book 10 and 12 years ago, and this is a confession, um a lot of special educators were kind of put off by what I was sharing. Um, I would say in the last five or six years, uh, they have overwhelmingly embraced what's in the book. And, and I think the big shift has been, particularly with a new generation of special education leaders or maybe even veterans who have seen the data, the realization that special ed alone cannot help students with disabilities be successful, that it has to be the special ed, general ed joint effort, that it has to be the principal of the school the assistant superintendent for curriculum and instruction and the special ed director who leads this effort and we the end so the biggest shift has been this breakdown of a siloed expectation that special ed alone can and should help all of all of our students with disabilities be successful and that's been phenomenal and And the places that have broken it down have seen incredible gains. You know, uh, districts where where I was a superintendent, we closed the general ed, special ed achievement gap in our high school by almost 40 percentage points, both in English and math. We reduced the number of struggling readers K-5 by two thirds. Um, Wyzetta High School got students who had been struggling in math for years embraced the six shifts, and saw kids who had never made a year's growth in math make three years worth of growth in math in a single year. And this was that general ed, special ed partnership. Very powerful when you do it.
0: So so speaking of the country as a whole, and I know this can be difficult to kind of generalize, but Give us a grade on how we're doing with special ed. I, I would assume in the in the 50s and the 60s, we were getting an F, and I'm just guessing. You kind of give us a grade for the 80s and the 90s and, and how we're doing today.
2: You know, I have never been asked that question, and somebody probably should have asked me that question before, and I'm going to hang myself on this. Right. I would say an A for effort and a D for outcomes. Today? Today.
0: Wow, so D for outcomes. So you feel like there's there's got to be a – You know, the effort's there, but there's a lot of room to improve, right?
2: Yes, we are trying so hard, both the hours, the energy, the caring. Again, back in my day when I was a a young child, we did not care. So we got an F for effort and an F for outcomes. Um, People are doing everything they know to help kids with disabilities succeed. Um, But the, the achievement gaps are just huge. Uh, Only 20% of kids with disabilities will go off to college. There aren't that many middle-class jobs, sustainable wages, that have no college behind them. Um, We have created a system that relies on paraprofessionals to help kids get through school, but it doesn't help you get through life. Yeah, I, I think the reason the book is so important is that fundamentally we are getting an A for effort. Uh, But the outcomes are just nothing that we can be comfortable with. And I meet very few people, maybe special ed directors, special ed teachers or parents who would say, I look at our outcomes and feel good.
0: Maybe your next PowerPoint presentation should be titled A for Effort, D for Outcomes, just to kind of grab people's attention out the gate. Um, uh, again, this is a, a great book. We've talked, I know, about Shift 1 and Shift 2, which special education to general education for more adults to more time. I don't want to give away all the shifts on the show, but I do want to encourage people to check out the book. Again, it's Six Shifts to Improve Special Education and Other Interventions. Uh, and the author is Nathan Levinson or Nate Levinson. Um, we really appreciate you chatting with us about this book. It's it's a great tool. Um, If somebody wants to get the book, what's the best way to do that?
2: Uh, Amazon, of course, and Harvard Education Press website as well.
0: Yeah, and I think that's harvardeducationpress.org. Nate, are you ready for our pop quiz?
2: Ready as I'll ever be. All
0: right. First question. If students could only go to school for one subject, which subject should it be? Reading. What are we not teaching in school that we should be teaching?
2: Uh, financial literacy.
0: What does every child deserve?
2: Uh, a great education and a great shot at a successful life after graduation.
0: What's the biggest challenge for today's educators?
2: Acknowledging that what we've done in the past, even though inten- well intentioned, has not been successful and therefore we've got to try something different.
0: What's the best gift to give an educator?
2: Uh, six shifts to improve special education and other interventions, of course. Very
0: good. Uh, Which teacher changed your life? And you kind of hinted on this earlier on. So I'm curious to hear this answer.
2: I owe everything to a speech and language therapist. Um, I had six years of speech therapy. There was one at the end where it all just clicked. And I went from being very, very hard to understand, very shy as a result, uh, to somebody who talks nonstop to anybody who will listen now. (laughs)
0: <laughs> and last uh question pen or pencil? Uh pen. Again Nate Levinson, we really appreciate you taking the time. It's a it's an excellent book and uh thanks for coming on the class to Smith podcast.
2: Thanks for having me. Appreciate it.
0: That's going to do it for this episode of Class Dismissed. If you want to send us an idea or comment, remember you can always email us at info at classdismissedpodcast.com or tweet us at Class Dismissed. We're here to support educators, but we need your support as well. So please subscribe to the show. And we'd also appreciate it if you could leave us a five-star review on iTunes. On behalf of all the good people working at School Status and Christina representing all those educators out there, thank you for listening. I'm Nick Ortigo and I'll talk with you next week.
1: Class Dismissed. (music) you <music>